Take your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter number 4. I'm excited to preach again this evening. Uh, I have to be honest with you, this sermon is not necessarily the one that I want to preach. I have another sermon later in this chapter that I want to preach. But I don't think the Lord wants me to preach it. This being Missions Month, I think it appropriate to uh, keep the emphasis on missions. Keep the emphasis on not only worldwide missions, but also home missions. And so, uh, sorry, you're not getting the one I want. You're getting the one that I believe God wants. So I hope you can settle for that. Second um, Timothy chapter number 4. This is just something that I've been doing lately. It's been very helpful to me. Maybe you, you will find it helpful too. If not, just disregard it and don't worry about it. But I, I struggle to fall asleep at night. Uh, I, I generally lay in the bed for significant lengths of time. And in this year, I've set a reading goal. And one of the ways that I've tried to do that is through Audible. I, I downloaded an Audible subscription. And, and so I've been reading uh, books through Audible. Well, since I do have trouble falling asleep, one thing I wanted to do was just to pour Scripture into myself. And so what I've been doing is at night, when I get ready to go to sleep, I just turn on Scripture. And specifically, I target a book or two. In this case, I've been listening to First and Second Timothy uh, for probably the last two weeks. And it seems really odd that you would just continuously listen to the same things over and over again. But what you see is you begin to see patterns and subtleties that didn't stick out to you before and, and things that maybe, uh, like in this case, Paul was trying to convey to his young preacher boy. And, and so it, maybe that'll be a help to you. Uh, but this has been a real blessing to me. And generally... What happens is I wake up and I'm in Hebrews 12 and I have to turn it off because it just kept going through. But, but maybe you can use that. Just try it if you like it. Great. If not, usually I'm really in tune to about four chapters and then the fifth chapter I'm kind of in and out. But uh, you know how it goes. But it has been a real blessing. And so I just wanted to share that to you. I'm not saying it's a substitute for your daily devotional. I'm not saying any of that, but it has been a help to me, especially since I do have trouble shutting my mind off. It's allowed me to focus on scripture and what, what it's trying to say and teach. And I find I'm falling asleep faster and I'm in a better mood when I fall asleep and Amy snores and I just, I'm able to walk in the spirit at that point in time. I'm just kidding. She doesn't snore. She tells me she had her tonsils taken out. I don't believe her. Anyway, 2 Timothy chapter number 4, this message is, is partly motivated from the fact that I have been listening to these books uh, as I go to bed at night. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 1, the Bible says, I charge thee. Loosely, we could say Paul is challenging Timothy. Loosely, we could say he's calling his attention. He's, he's asking him to stand up. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And what we do, if we're not careful, is we read over a verse like that and pass it off as insignificant as we try to make our way down to the meat of the message. Let me tell you what Paul is saying to Timothy here is the meat. 
He's saying, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead. Where is this challenge coming from? Well, it's coming from Paul, who has a tremendous relationship with Timothy. It's coming from the Apostle Paul, who now is writing literally the last few words that he will ever pen as Scripture is concerned. This is Paul, his spiritual forefather, if you will. This is the Apostle Paul. And from that standpoint, it would make total sense for me, at least, if Paul had written this letter and say, hey, Timothy, because of our relationship, because of the time that I've invested in you, because of how much I love you and how much I think you're capable of, I charge you to do a great work for God. But that is not motivation enough to stay in the fight. Because an earthly person loves you and encourages you or, or that you're talented and you have so much potential or that, that maybe, maybe if you just stick it out a few more years, you really do something great for God. That is not reason enough to stay. Paul says, I charge you, I adjure you, I challenge you on the basis of God's love for you and your love for Him and the fact that everything you do will one day be called into judgment and you will be rewarded for the works that you do here on earth. I charge you under that vein of thinking. Not as a father charges a son but as a spiritual father charges a spiritual son before the heavenly father. Paul writes this. And after saying that, I charge you because of God, and I charge you that one day every work that you'll do will be called into judgment. I I, I charge you, here's what the charge is. Preach the word. Be instant in season out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You know, this is one of those subtle things that stuck out to me as I was reading this. Paul, throughout his entire ministry, dealt with false doctrine. The book of Galatians is written to combat false doctrine. 1 Corinthians is all about false doctrine infiltrating the church. And now Paul says, the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Well, it would seem to me that that time's already here. You've been fighting it all your whole ministry, Paul. but, But why now? Because Paul understood it's bad now, it only gets worse. Men will fall away from sound doctrine more and more. The Bible teaches us that men shall, be, shall wax worse and worse. They shall be lovers of themselves. The Bible teaches us that times do not get better the closer that Christ's return comes. And Paul says, in the last days perilous times will come. The, the men will not endure sound doctrine. And that's why you need to preach the word. And when they will not endure sound doctrine... They will, after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be, shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. 
This is the next statement is kind of where we launch from in the sermon this evening. Make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but but unto all them also that love His appearing. Let's pray. God, we ask tonight that You would help in this time that we have together, I just, you know my heart, Lord. I, I don't feel adequate tonight. Not that I ever feel exceptionally gifted or, or adequate to not need your help, but you know the circumstances, you know the situations, and you know, Lord, I, I just, I, I, I don't feel tonight that I have it. And so, God, I am asking you to come alongside me and help me. As I stand to present your truth, I have done my best in study and preparation. I have prayed. Lord, I have done everything that I know to do. But, God, I'm asking that you help me tonight. And then, secondly, Lord, my prayer is for every person in this room. These are the cream of the crop. These are the best Christians that I know. They're in this church service tonight. On a Sunday night, they chose to come to church instead of doing what everybody else in most Christendom is doing. They are in the house of God waiting to hear from the man of God and from the word of God. Lord, that impresses me and I'm thankful for their faith. But my prayer is tonight that you would open their heart and that the distractions that can come from cell phones and Uh, people leaving the auditorium and children and all sorts of things would be put at ease and God, your spirit would be quick and your word would be powerful and Lord, you would accomplish that which you want to tonight in this service. I pray, Lord, that you would do this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist and make full proof of thy ministry. Now you will never hear me say, I think I can tell how the translator should have better corrected the text. I I will never say, well, it should be said this way. I will never say that. First of all, all those guys that translated the King James Version were light years smarter than me anyway. So what a fool that I would be to somewhat try to correct them. But to take it a step further, I believe this is the perfect and errant and fallible preserved Word of God. I think that for the English speaking language. So for me to say I can change it and make it better is an insult to Almighty God. But I will tonight try to explain to you what this phrase means. Make full proof of thy ministry. And, and what I want to do is maybe use a modern day phrase that, that we would be more familiar with. Not that I'm saying it's a better way to say it. I'm just saying maybe we would understand it better because of the way we use language today. This phrase, make full proof of thy ministry, really, as I've come to study it and try to uh, look at the original Greek and all sorts of things, I've found that the best way that I can say it is this. Take full advantage of. 
Take full advantage of where God has you, what God is asking you to do, the people that God has given you to minister to. Take advantage of your ministry. Did you know that ministries are not reserved for preachers? We all have a ministry. I've been called into full-time ministry, and frankly, I hate that term. I hate the term because we're all in full-time ministry. We're all children of God. We're all servants of the Most High God. It's not something that we ever take a break from. 24-7, 365, we ought to be a servant of God and we ought to be ministering on His behalf. We should never seek a, a, a break from that. I don't like the term full-time minister because I think everybody is that. And this passage uses the term, uh, uh, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. That's not something that only Dr. J.C. House is. That's something that you are. It means a bearer of good tidings. It means somebody who carries forth a message That's what the word means. So it's saying, do the work of evangelists. Now, I personally believe at this point in Timothy's ministry, he is pastoring a church. uh, But but Paul doesn't say, do the work of a bishop or do the work of of a shepherd or do the work of an overseer. He's not saying that. He's saying, do the work of an evangelist. That's not a title for the pastor. He's saying, carry forth the good tidings of the gospel. And that's something we're all commanded to do. He says, take full advantage of the mission field that God has called you to. We're not all going to the 1040 window. I'm thankful for your faith and following God's leadership in that area. But we're, we're, us, are called to the 76058, the 817, the 254. We're called to this area. And, and we can partner with the Poyle family and we'll support them both financially and with our prayers. But your mission field is here. They're going to make full proof of their mission field. Now God says to you, you make full proof of your mission field. God says, I've put people in your life. I've put you in places that nobody else is. Uh, it's pretty unique when you see social media and the web starts to go out. How many people this group of people right here has connections with. And every one of those connections is your mission field. God says, take full advantage of the place that I've placed you. In college, uh, in Bible college at least, uh, it's very hard to find any place that you're kind of alone. And, 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 and we had limited seating at college where I went. And so usually about the evening time would roll around. The couples would all start fighting for seats. And man, if you wanted to sit anywhere, you were going to have to fight for it because there just wasn't enough seating for all the students around. And and so it became difficult to date my wife. We met freshman year. We, we dated all through college. And so I found about half, well, uh, just about sophomore year, I found a loophole in the system. You see, at Bible college, we're not allowed to date. I mean, we can be going out, but we can't go out off campus with a girl alone. That's just no way, Jose. <laughs> not a chance. And so... We, we would never get much privacy. We'd never be able to uh, go out on dates. And, and really, if we wanted to go on a date, we would have to go to a small corner of a small building and right next to us would be another couple. Most of the time, since it's a Baptist Christian college, they're a little weird anyway. So you're just kind of really in their bubble. They're in your bubble. It's very uncomfortable. But I found a loophole sophomore year. 
See, in our handbook, if you were engaged, you could get two dates a year to go plan your wedding. So, I asked my wife to marry me way too early so we could take full advantage of these dates. I mean, I wasn't even sure if I liked her, but we were engaged. Yeah, I think we got engaged uh, between our sophomore and junior year. We got three full semesters of two dates. We were going on dates to plan our wedding. We were going like, oh, yeah, we don't want that shower curtain. Let's go. You know, I mean, we, we were taking full advantage of the way that the rules were written. The, 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 the Apostle Paul is writing his son in the faith and he's saying, Timothy, God's put you in a place. Uh, God has you ministering to a group of people. There's lost people everywhere. Hey, Timothy, just lift up your eyes. Take full advantage of where God has you. You know, this message was somewhat taught when Jesus was on the earth. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. And what Jesus was saying was, there comes a day when you're not going to be able to take advantage of it like you can right now. So while you're here and while you're able, while you have the physical strength and the the, the connections, take full advantage of where God has you. Here's my question for you. Are you fully taking advantage of the place that God has you right now? Do the people in your life know your testimony? Are they aware of the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ? And have you shared with them the life-changing message of the gospel? Have you done this? Chances are, if the answer is no, you're not taking full advantage of where God has you. And by the way... God has you there. He he doesn't have me there. And He doesn't have our deacons there. He doesn't have our leadership there. He just has you there. And He's counting on you to take full advantage of where you're at. And as I study this passage this evening, I kind of see Paul encourage Timothy in three areas that he can take full advantage of the ministry. Number one, he says, number one, you got to preach the Word constantly. Preach the Word constantly. Now, I'm a bit biased. I love verse number 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. I mean, you tell that to a preacher, he just gets a little fire in his belly. He just kind of wants to go get a hanky and like, you know, pull up his belt like him old boys did that were way overweight in Baptist camp meetings. They start sweating a little bit and they they get their hankies and they wipe themselves and they, they beat the pulpit like that, I tell you. And it's just good. And everybody gets to yelling amen. I would do it if y'all would yell amen, but y'all don't yell amen. It's just awkward when I'm doing it by myself. You see, I, I, I read that verse and just I get a little fire in my belly because the Bible says, Hey, Timothy, you preach the word, young preacher boy. And man, that's exciting for me. But I'm afraid that the, the way that we read that text, we, we almost exclusively attach this command to preachers. And we say, man, I bet when Brother Andrew reads that, he's just excited. Man, I bet that's been an encouragement down the line for some preacher somewhere. I want you to notice this verse is just as much for you as it is for Timothy. All, pro- all Scripture is profitable. Uh, it helps us all. And the Bible says you preach the Word. And then the, 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 the next statement is this. Be instant in season and out. So how are we supposed to preach the Word? Well, we're supposed to have proper timing. 
We're supposed to look for opportunity to do it. Be instant in season and out of season. You could say the Bible is saying seasonably or unseasonably. Another way to put that is at opportune times and inopportune times, be ready to preach the gospel. Sometimes I think we, we treat the gospel and our personal evangelism like we do our car. Because, you know, there's certain times where we have to schedule maintenance on our car and we know it needs an oil change. The miles counting down. So we schedule a time to take our car in to get fixed, right? That's like our Saturday soul winning. We've got a scheduled time when we go soul winning. And then we have the inconvenient times where like we go out to the car and it just tick, 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 tick. And the battery's dead. And then it just throws a whole monkey wrench in our calendar. We've got to drive down to AutoZone in our other one of three cars. And we go get that battery. We put it in our other car. And then that's kind of like the, 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 the time where it's like, oh, a preacher called a special night of soul winning. So that's kind of like the inconvenient one for us. But really, instead of treating it like the, your car maintenance schedule, how about we just treat it like our car? Like, like we get in our car every day. We use our car every day. We just, we're always in our car. It's no big deal. We just expect to at one time throughout the day encounter our car. And I think if our personal evangelism was more like the way we view our car as opposed to the way we view our car maintenance, it might actually change the way we view personal evangelism. That we would constantly be looking for opportunities to preach the gospel, being instant in season and out of season. A pastor one day grew very frustrated with a particular man in his church. And he was trying to say something because this man had become unfaithful over time uh, with his church attendance. And he went to visit this man at his home. He knocked on the door and, and the man invited him in. He was kind to the pastor, so although somewhat distant. Throughout the course of conversation, the pastor wanted to challenge him about his faithfulness. And he said these words to the man. He said, sir... You need to get in the army of God. The man, somewhat shocked, thought just for a little while, and he said, Preacher, I am in the army of God. The preacher, kind of taken back by what he said, knowing that he hasn't been to church in some time, he said, How are you in the army of God? The only time I ever see is on Christmas and Easter. The man quickly replied, Well, preacher, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) I think what we have really is too many people in the secret service. When it comes to this matter of personal evangelism, of affecting and taking full advantage of the mission field that you have, we've got to constantly be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. You say, Brother Andrew, I'm just not called. I'm not gifted in that area. Jesus took 12 disciples and the command was the same for them all. They all have various gifts. They all have different talents. And he says, hey, guys, I give to you the great commission. Now, you go, therefore, and preach the gospel to every creature. It was not based upon who was gifted, who was well-spoken. The great commission is great because it encompasses all of us. We've got to understand that we must be looking for opportunities. Throughout the book of Second Timothy... I count personally six other times where Paul encourages Timothy to, in one way or another, teach or preach the gospel. Seven times in this very short book, Paul says, Hey, Timothy, the answer for your ministry, the answer for your world is that people would hear truth from Scripture. 
Yet people can access all sorts of information with their cell phones. They can go on YouTube. And man, sometimes I get to falling in the Dr. Phil YouTube hole. I don't know if any of you have ever fallen in that labyrinth. Uh, Tell you what, Dr. Phil, he's a smart man. He's a smart man. But as I watch that, I look at all these people with all these problems. I'm like, how are you this crazy? How are you this messed up? And what I, I, theologically, I come back to this. I know how you're that messed up. I know how your life is that ruined. That's what sin does. And those, Dr. Phil has de- more, you know, more degrees than a thermometer. And though he has all the answers in the world, whatever answers he could give them, whatever treatment centers he could send them to, I believe with all my heart the answer for every man is found within the pages of this book. The answer for every man's lost and hurt, hurting condition is their need for Jesus Christ. We've got to look for opportunities. We've got to be always looking. One of the best preachers in all the Bible is in Acts chapter 8. Wasn't a full-time evangelist, wasn't a full-time preacher. His name was Philip, just a deacon. He's a layman. In fact, I read the, the, the testimony of the early New Testament church and I say, no wonder they had so much power. There were Philips running around everywhere. Philip flees Jerusalem because uh, 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 Stephen just was martyred by Saul of Tarsus. By those he consented unto his death. And and Philip flees from Jerusalem. And instead of getting down to Samaria and saying, Oh man, life's terrible. I've been relocated. People are trying to track me down. You know what he does? He takes the gospel with him. And when he gets there, the Bible says, And with one accord they received the gospel. And then a revival breaks out. Everybody gets saved. And then then the angel of the Lord comes to uh, Philip and says, Hey, Philip, why don't you go down to the desert, which is by Gaza? And we heard about that last week because there's an Ethiopian eunuch there sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. And and the the Ethiopian eunuch says, uh, How can I understand this passage of scripture, Scripture except some man should guide me? Philip was just a man who was led by the Lord. He was looking for opportunities. Dislocated from his home. What did he do? He preached the gospel. Led by, the, by God into the wilderness and the desert. What did he do? He preached the gospel. Every moment I read his story, he has opportunity to disobey God. And yet every time he responds in humility and obedience. Philip's the kind of man that we need as church members. Just full of the spirit looking for an opportunity to share what God has done in their own life. The Bible tells us that it is the preaching of the cross... That is the power of God. It tells us that the, the, there's people that desire signs and miracles. And there's people that desire wisdom and man's cunning ability to craft their words. But at the end of the day, it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching, He would save them that believe. Preaching and teaching the gospel message. Are you looking for opportunities to teach and preach God's word? we got to not, not only, as we preach the gospel, we must not only look for the proper time, we must use the proper technique. It says not only be instant in season and out of season, it says reprove, rebuke, exhort. Repu- reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The word reprove means to refute or reprehend severely. It, it somewhat paints the picture of someone coming to God's Word. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? It's kind of the picture that it paints. As men come to this Word, as this book 
cuts across the grain of their conscience as it begins to say you're wrong because God says this is right. As all this takes place, the Bible says the job of those that preach and teach truth is that they would not bend the words of Scripture to somehow accommodate the man, but that the Word of God would somehow change the man. Our world doesn't need uh, renovating. Our world needs transformation. They need to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we got to reprove, we've got to refute the errors that men come to. And you've got to understand, people bring all sorts of baggage into church. Different denominational experiences, different uh, uh, church preferences. If you ask the, the, just the common Christian today... If they were to rank 1 through 10, what their preference, how they would choose their next church, 1, 2, and 3 are going to have something to do with the worship style and the music style. And that's not what church is about. You, I mean, that's how you choose your radio station you listen to. That's how you choose what CD to put in your car next. That's not how you choose the Word of God. Most people don't even know what, what, what doctrine really is. And... And so we've got to understand when people come to our church and when people come to our Sunday school classes and when people, we meet people in our church, not everybody comes from the same place. But I'm telling you right now, we do not accommodate them by changing the Word. We allow the Word to change them. We cannot change the Word of God. We've got to reprove, we've got to rebuke. That means to admonish or charge sharply, to challenge Man, that's the, one, that's the reason we preach like we do. I mean, I wish I preached better, but that's the reason we preach the way we do. We preach loud. We, preach, we proclaim it like a herald. Why? Because, because sometimes when God's Word is, is lifted up and spoken with authority and the Holy Spirit begins to work in the heart, it really changes them. And really, conviction is when God's Spirit begins to, to transform the heart. So what we do is we preach that way. We rebuke error. We rebuke sin. We rebuke things in people's lives that would otherwise not be pleasing to God. But then thirdly, and possibly the most neglected way that we can teach God's Word, is the Bible says we can exhort. This word means to call to one side. To somehow cuddle up next to and bring under, like the, the, the picture that I have in my mind is a mother hen bringing her chicks to her to protect them. It speaks clearly of encouragement from God's Word. Like I said, people come from all types of backgrounds. Go with me and visit some of the homes that I go into. Go with me and sit at the dinner table with people whose lives have just been wrecked by sin. Sometimes they, the last thing they need is a preacher jumping down their throat and telling them exactly how wrong they are. Sometimes they need somebody to bring them in and say, hey, you know what? We love you. And God loves you. But God wants to help you. We've got to understand that the Word of God can uplift. It's never meant to tear people down. It's always meant to build people up. In the late 1980s, a book was written by the name of Lifestyle Evangelism, and it somewhat became 
hugely popular in the 1990s as this idea that we could in one way or another live out the gospel so as in a way to make other people desire it. Maybe you've heard that type of philosophy in Sunday school classes. I remember hearing that type. Hey, kids, live out your, live out your faith so that other people may see what you have. And, and truly, I think you can even support that with the Bible. The Bible says that, uh, it, 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 that men will see our good works and they'll glorify our Father which is in heaven. So in one sense, I understand where it comes from. But what it has done is it has weakened confrontational personal evangelism to the point where it is anemic or non-existent. We just let our actions speak louder than our words. Sometimes people don't know how to read your actions. Sometimes words actually are louder. Sometimes confronting somebody with their need for salvation actually helps. You can't just say, oh, I'm a lifestyle evangelist. No, evangelism is a lifestyle. It's a choice you make every morning whether or not to put the tracks in your pocket. It's a choice you make every day whether or not to give the person at the gas station a track. It's a choice. That's not lifestyle evangelism. It's an evangelism, uh, or it's a lifestyle of evangelism. We've got to understand that there's proper techniques to how Christ would want us to preach His Word. But then thirdly, not only do we have to look for the right time, not only do we need to utilize the right technique, we've got to, thirdly, teach it. You say, you've already been talking about that. But I want you to notice in verse number two, I never knew this. Maybe you're a lot smarter than me. The Bible says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. The word doctrine means a teaching. In the early... Uh, early in the book of Acts, we find that the, the disciples, they continue, those that were converted at the day of Pentecost, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? It means that they continued in the teachings of the apostles given to them originally by Jesus Christ. So doctrine is, you know, we're doing these vision electives on, on Monday night or third Monday night of every month. Those are great, and we are looking at systematic theology. We're going very in-depth on what theology is and doctrine. But when the Bible uses the term doctrine in this case, I don't think it's just this super deep thing. I think doctrine really can be anything the Bible teaches. So we don't have to look at what superlapsarianism is or dispensationalism. We don't have to look at those things. Sometimes what people need most is, hey, why is that wrong to drink? I mean, I don't want to offend anybody tonight, but the Bible's pretty clear on it. And if you want to, you can go read a liberal theologian that can tell you why it's okay. Or you can just not watch a guy try to dissect why the Bible says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Or you can understand that the, one of the only two groups in the Old Testament that couldn't drink was, was the, the, the keepers of the temple. And by the way, you know that the temple is no longer here. You know where the temple is, right? The Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So who's the keeper of the temple? You are. So in other words, you now are the New Testament version of the Old Testament people that could not drink. You've you got to understand, sometimes the things that people need most is not the pneumatology, uh, uh, the pneumatology doctrine or, or the hemardiology doctrine. Sometimes all they need is, hey preacher, why is this the wrong thing to do? 
Hey, friend, why, what can you tell me to encourage my wife? She's been really down lately. And any time we offer the teachings of God's Word, it's a help to people. And I want you to see it says not only that we would teach them doctrine, but that we would do it with long-suffering. Why do we need patience when we teach the, the, the doctrines of God's Word? I'll tell you why. It's because most of the time the people don't get it the first time. Most of the time, sanctification is a very long process. Believe me, I'm still working on my own. And so we find that we got to do it with patience. You know, when somebody comes into our church and gets saved, their life has just been flipped upside down. Everything's changed. All the friends that they made while they were lost, now they're the only saved person of that friend group in many cases. All the places that they used to go on Friday night to have fun, they can't go there anymore because now they're saved. And the Bible pictures them as babes in Christ. When I brought home my children from the hospital, the, the most difficult thing I did on day one was when they told me I had to strap this little bitty baby into that ginormous baby seat. Maybe you remember that. Now they've got these buckles. It looks like a NASCAR that you're strapping them into. They've got like a four-way harness. Click, click, click. Tight, strap, bungee. You know, you got to do all this stuff. And I remember the first time I'm holding this little child. And I'm like, don't break it, don't break it, don't break it. I place it in the seat. And I'm like, I don't want to pinch its neck fat, you know. And I'm like, don't do that. Bad, bad, bad thing to do on day one, you know. And I'm doing this and I'm carrying it out to the car. I'm all careful because I don't want to be the guy that trips and falls and has to go right back into the hospital, you know. So I'm, I'm trying to take care of it. The Bible compares a new convert to that little helpless baby. You know what's crazy? In the animal kingdom, babies don't have the opportunity to be helpless. A baby calf lays down for three hours. It better get up or the coyotes or the buzzards are coming. A deer the same way. Turkeys the same way. They've got to follow mama. They've got to hide, hide from the raccoons and the coyotes. Is it not ridiculous how much an infant child depends on their parents and how long they depend on their parents? You know, everybody talks about raising a baby in this like glamour lifestyle. You know what ours is filled with? A lot of spit up and changing of nasty diapers. That's kind of what, you know, the glam parent life. And if the Bible compares a new convert to a babe in Christ, do you think that every once in a while when these new converts come in, we might need to exhibit a little patience and a little long suffering when, when maybe they have their first dirty diaper? When maybe they make a mistake the first time, we don't jump down their throat and say, Oh, brother, you knew better. No, 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 no. We teach them. Have you ever noticed how long it is for a child to walk on their own? And even when they do take their first steps, usually mom's there with the iPhone and dad's there. with. We're guiding them because we don't want them to fall. That's a picture of the, the New, New Testament church and, and, and discipling converts. You know what? If we taught less college-style lectures at our church and changed more dirty diapers, I think we might be glorifying God a little bit more. 
We're pouring knowledge into people beyond what most third world countries pastors have. We're teaching tremendous in-depth stuff. And by the way, I'm the one that made the decision and, and I'm thankful for it and I'm thankful you're coming. Let's keep up the good work. But do you understand that it's not enough for us to just be poured into at some point? We've got to start spilling over onto others. And that maybe it might behoove you to make full proof of thy ministry. Take full advantage of these new people that come into our church and get saved. Put them under your arm and say, hey, walk with me for a little bit. Walk with me. Let me help you. Can I text you? Hey, do you need some help moving that dryer? Hey, what can I do? Your dog's sick today. Hey, let me, let me just encourage you somehow. Maybe we could just love on people for a little while. We've got to be patient with them. And teach them. You'll do far more proving the love of Christ to somebody sitting at a coffee table than I could ever do yelling at them from this pulpit. Now, I think this is important, and I believe the Bible places a primacy on preaching. I think that this is very important. But I'm saying every once in a while, they need to know how much you care before they care how much you know. We've got to love people. We've got to care about them and look for opportunities to share God's word with them. Make full proof of thy ministry. Not only this evening should we preach the word constantly, but we should persevere through the adversity. Verse number five, the Bible says, But watch thou in all things endure afflictions. Listen to me, if you make a decision tonight to enter into this, to begin to make full proof of your ministry, to do the work in evangelist, if you choose to do that, you are painting a bullseye on your back. Afflictions will follow. It's not like Paul said, hey, Timothy, and I'll pray that afflictions miss you. He said, just endure them, they're coming. Afflictions will happen. The Apostle Paul knew a great deal about afflictions. He said, oh, I've been beat, I've been stoned, I've died, I've been shipwrecked, oh, I've been naked, I've been cold, I've been in poverty, man. I've had people in the church criticize me, I've had people outside the church criticize me. I've had a pretty rough go at it. He knew a little bit about afflictions and he told Timothy, endure them all. Persevere through the adversity. In America, we know so little about adversity. If I could take you to show you the faith of some of these people in other countries, you would come back and beg God for forgiveness for how little our faith is. Here's the greatest adversity we face when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. The fear of rejection. We have missionaries in our church tonight that literally as they go they can fear imprisonment. We don't have to deal with that. The biggest thing that we have to worry about is the fear that somebody might say, no, I'm not interested. And here's the sad thing. That's really not your biggest worry. I mean, that, it stinks and yeah, nobody likes to be rejected. But here's the biggest problem. We don't even realize this. When we decide to become a soul winner, when we decide to take full proof of our ministry, when we do that, we enter into a spiritual battle that we're not even aware of. 
Our battle's not with flesh and blood. Our battle's not with the man at the door that doesn't want to talk to us. Our battle is against spiritual wickedness and rulers in high places. We enter into the front lines, Satan on one side, the army of God on the other, and we're saying, if God be for us, who can be against us? Oh man, we've got to enter into the battle. We've got to face adversity of opposition. But secondly, we've got to face the adversity of opinion. In verse number 4, he says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. I believe with all my heart, I told somebody this morning after church, I said, look, I believe in Baptist doctrine. And I don't mean that, I don't believe that it's, you know, Baptist doctrine. I don't believe it because it's Baptist doctrine. I believe it's because it's Bible doctrine. And I said, and I believe that what I believe is right. If I didn't think I was right, guess what? I would go be something else. Being wrong's the worst. So I would, I would rather be right. But when I say that I'm right, you know what that means? A lot of other people are wrong. By, by me saying I'm right, and you being in this church, not you by your presence here, you're saying you believe we're teaching right, we're teaching truth. You're saying by your presence here tonight that you think what we believe is right. So therefore, many other things are wrong. And when you go out into the highways and the hedges, when you go out into the harvest field, you'll find that people do not endure truth very long. They don't like it. It cuts across the grain of their uh, sophistication. It cuts across the, as I mentioned this morning, a sermon on the blood of Jesus. As I mentioned that, I even had to write a disclaimer before the sermon. Remember I said, I understand that this may appall you a little bit. There's nothing in my life appalling about the blood of Jesus. It is the most beautiful thing that I can ever imagine in my life. It doesn't gross me out. It's not vile to me because the Bible says that the, the life of the flesh is the blood. And yeah, I believe that applies in white blood cells and taking care of infections. I also believe it goes a step farther. I believe the life of the flesh is the blood and the fact that Jesus' precious blood was spilled for our sins. Every single drop was shed for our sins. And if one drop had stayed, who knows, one drop, one sin might not have been forgiven. But it was all spilt, so it was all forgiven. And yet in our world, the idea of blood is disgusting. Things we believe, like the virgin birth, people roll their eyes. The fact that we believe in the seven literal days of creation, people look at us like we're crazy, like there's a God powerful enough to do that. My friend, not only do I believe there's a God powerful enough to do that, I think on the seventh day, the entire reason He rested was to prove to us that we needed rest. At the end of the sixth day, God wasn't sitting up there huffing and puffing, saying, oh man, that was tough. No, 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 no. It was nothing for God. I believe all this, and yet our world doesn't like truth. Man, they've been pumped so many lies, they've started believing them. In Timothy's day, there was a group of people called sophists. They were preachers. They were literally hired preachers that would come in and teach on whatever you wanted them to teach on. And here's the problem. They were really good. 
They used good stories and they were clever and they had cunningly devised fables and they would use these to motivate and teach in spheres of morality and virtue and yet everybody knew that they were peddling lies. One man was quoted as saying about these people, they try to attract pupils by low fees and big promises. Plato described them like this, Hunters after young men of wealth and position with sham education as their bait and a fee for their object, making money by, uh, by a scientific use of quabbles and private conversation while quite aware that what they are teaching is wrong. They just taught because it made them a dollar. I'm telling you in our world there are people that are just teaching. And they're teaching error and people are believing the lies that they teach. And that is why now more than ever, people need truth speakers in their lives. Not angrily, not, not controversially. And by the way, sometimes posting and speaking truth to correct somebody on social media isn't always the best venue. I might say that. Uh, because sometimes when we're typing, we struggle to balance grace and truth like Jesus did. Sometimes it's difficult to read the grace part when you're displaying truth on social media. But we find that these people were just doing what they were doing to earn a dollar. And Paul encouraged Timothy, hey, endure affliction of opposition. Endure affliction of opinion. Whether or not people think you're right or wrong, you just keep preaching. And then I want to share with you finally this evening. Paul encourages Timothy to make full proof of his ministry by pleasuring and faithfulness. Some of the last words ever penned by the Apostle Paul are these in verses 6 through 8. For I am now ready to be offered the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, uh, the righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. What you see here, it's kind of unique because in verse number 6 it says, My departure is at hand. If you will, imagine with me the Apostle Paul in a dungeonous cave. I mean, this is not like a Barney Fife prison. This is a cave that's wet and damp. In fact, if you look later in this chapter, he asks Timothy to visit him and bring a coat with him because I believe Paul is basically suffering from the effects of cold, damp conditions. He is suffering. And Paul is writing these letters and he says, Hey, Timothy, my departure is at hand. It's like he's in line at the Southwest Airlines counter. Position number one, group A. He says, Hey, Timothy, my departure is at hand. This man says these words as if it's some wholesome thing. He's already been tried by the emperor Nero. He is literally probably hearing them construct the place where they will behead him in just a few short days. He is about to die. And he pins these words not from a place of sorrow or mourning. He literally says, I am ready to be poured out. My time of my departure is at hand. It paints the idea of a drink offering being spilt out entirely for God. Paul says, hey, Timothy, everything I've done has been worth it. I've enjoyed the ride. I've done everything I can do. Now it's time for you to make full proof of your ministry because I have done so in mine. 
In our church, we have many people that are older. They have fought the good fight of faith. They have held the banner high for us. They have given sacrificially. They have witnessed faithfully. They have carried the torch for many years, both figuratively and literally here at the church. They have done so much for us. But as this generation ages, what we've got to do is we as younger men and women have got to take their place. We've got to step up. Timothy, literally Paul is passing the torch to Timothy. This is the Elijah dropping the mantle on Elisha moment for him. He says, hey Timothy, you do everything you can because I've done everything that I could. And as an aged man who's about to die, he writes and says, and I'm looking forward to the day when I get to meet Jesus. Because I know he's got a crown of life. There's two crowns spoken of in the New Testament. One speaks of a crown of royalty. This one speaks of a victor's crown. Somebody who's fought the fight, who's run the race, and receives the reward for their diligent effort. Have you made full proof of your ministry? Have you faithfully ministered and served in your place? Tonight, Brother Marshall, if you'll do me a favor... Is Brother Marshall here? Where is he at? Brother, oh, there he is up there. Brother Marshall, can you make sure that there are plenty of tracks at the front right here? I know you did that earlier this week, but I, I need probably many more if you'll do that for me. Tonight, I come to you with a challenge. I charge thee, just like Paul charged Timothy. Join in the fight. Do something this week. Make full proof of your ministry. You have a mission field just like the Boyle family has a mission field. We all have a mission field. And my my charge to you is on your way out, you grab a tract. You grab as many as you feel the Lord would have you grab. And then you make a commitment to God that this week you will make full proof of thy ministry. You will, in your mission field, saturate to the best of your ability them. You will give tracts. You will give an encouraging word. You will tell them about the gospel. You will both be a lifestyle evangelist and have an evangelistic lifestyle. You'll do it all because there is no thing in this this world that brings more pleasure than reaping the harvest field for Christ. I've stood by the bedside of many preachers as they're literally dying... Going, going on to be, meet the Lord. And I've never heard one of them say, you know what, I regret going and telling people about Jesus as much as I did. Our hallways are lined of men like Dr. House, like Brother J.D. Phillips. Preacher even got one up there. I think he paid for that one, though. I'm not sure how he got one. But at the end of all these men's lives, they're not going to say, man, I wish I had done less for Jesus. They always say, I wish I could have done more. The end of your life will you say, I've done everything I can. I've fought a good fight. I've ran the course. I I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Can you say that? Have you made full proof of the ministry that Christ has given you?